thank you so much uh, for this uh, opportunity to have our brother here uh, to preach the word. Uh, we're grateful for his giftedness and his, his desire to make himself available to you in this, to serve Renovation Church well. We pray you give him clarity of thought and, and may the Spirit speak through him as he uh, teaches out of your word, which is truth. Lord, we also pray for our brothers and sisters at Missio Church that you would bless them in their uh, efforts, in their mission to, to bring the gospel to every man, woman, and child in the city of Syracuse and beyond. We pray for their leaders and their people that they would truly live faithful lives of worship and, and really look to you as the one true God. So bless their ministry and, and their efforts in the city. We ask that we would be attentive to your word as it's declared this morning, uh, God, and we would be ready to hear and hear well in a way that we're responding with repentance and faith. Use Bernie this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, brother. Well, good morning. Good morning, good morning. It's good to be with you all and, uh, and worship with you and, and uh, have the privilege of opening God's Word with you. Um, we're going to be continuing along where you all have been tracking in the book of Exodus. So if you have your Bibles with you, would you turn with me to Exodus chapter 15? We're going to be looking at um, verses 1 through 21. Exodus chapter 15, 1 through 21. And uh, you all have been, uh, you've taken a little break, but you all have been journeying through the book of Exodus. And we've seen, uh, from the, for those of you who may be new or unfamiliar with the book of Exodus, um, that at the opening of the book of Exodus, we have uh, the people of God have grown into this, uh, this, this great nation of millions of people, and yet there's a problem because while they're a great people, they are, they are in slavery. They are in subject, uh, subjectivity to uh, a, a wicked tyrant, the, the, the pharaoh of Egypt. And, and so they cry out to God for deliverance, and, and God hears their prayer and raises up a deliverer named Moses, and, and Moses goes to the king on behalf of God and asks and commands, not asks, commands uh, Moses, let my people go. Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and, and through a series of wonders, signs, and, and miracles, what we have come to call plagues, frogs, gnats, disease, darkness, death of the firstborn, Pharaoh finally relents to the mighty hand of God and his people are delivered out of the desert. And they take and, and the last time you were in Exodus, you saw that in Exodus 14, the people were wandering around the desert and Pharaoh said, what have I done? I just lost my entire labor force. I need to go after them and get them back. And so he chases them and they're cornered between the mighty Egyptian army, probably the greatest army of the world of that day, and the water, which likely few of them, if any, could swim. So they faced drowning or back into slavery, and God rescues them. And that's where we find ourselves in this text this morning. They have just been rescued through the sea. God parted the waters miraculously, and they walked through, not just on uh, the waters being parted, but on dry land. And this text is a response to what God has done. Let's read it. Exodus chapter 15, verses 1 through 21. Then Moses 
and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power, your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard. They tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them. Because of the greatness of your arm, they are still as a stone. Till your people, O Lord, pass by. Till the people by, uh, pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode. The sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. For when the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Word of the Lord. This morning, I want to... Um, Maybe get a little crazy here, but I, I want to suggest 11 reasons, every one of you, 11 reasons every single one of you needs to be a vegetarian. Right? Mike, week after week, I'm sure, talks about Maisie's Meats up here, and, and that's, you know... That just happens. But this morning, I want to set things straight, and I'm going to give you 11 reasons everyone, all of you, need to be a vegetarian. Okay, not really. But here's what I want to do instead. I want to give you 34 reasons that everyone, all of you who have kids, and 
for those of you who have grandkids, think about your kids and, and counseling them. 34 reasons every one of you needs to homeschool your children. I mean, no exceptions. Every one of you. Okay. Everyone needs to. Right? Fill in the blank. You, you've heard the statements throughout your life. Everyone needs to. And don't you just love the everyone needs to statements? And, and by love, I mean cringe at and kind of shudder at and back up from. Like, everyone needs to. Uh, they're, they're almost absurd because so few things apply to everyone. And, and so, in the interest of clearing the air this morning and just putting out there, I actually do want to give you four reasons this morning that singing isn't for everyone. Part of what we do when we gather together here, and we just did it, is, is sing, right? Um, now, there's other things we do. We come and, and, and we fellowship with one another, we connect with one another, we check in with one another, we encourage one another, we pray. We, we do that. And, and we hear the Word of God read, we heard Psalm 135, and, and we hear the Word of God taught. But one thing we do every time we get together as the people of God is, is sing, and Singing, it's just not for everyone. It's just not. So this morning, I want to give you four reasons not to sing. And if some or any of these reasons apply to you, then I don't want you to sing. I, I urge you not to sing. And maybe you can kind of, when, when Matt and, and the rest of the leadership crew come back up, you can kind of mumble along just so it looks like you're kind of participating in, in what's happening and you're not left out. But I want to give you four reasons why it's really not all that critical. And again, if, it, if one or any of these apply to you, then, then feel free to abstain. First, you should not sing if sin has not affected you all that much. If your disposition, when, when you were born and, 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 and as you were growing up, if your disposition was a, a little better, a little nicer than most people, then, then maybe you should consider not singing. Because there's not anything all that big that you actually needed help with, God could help you with, and, and so there's nothing to respond to you. And sure, sin is, is a little bit of a nagging problem sometimes, right? You know, it, it bites at your heels, it, 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 you know, it creates some issues in your marriage occasionally, it puts you in, in some awkward situations uh, at work possibly, it, it messes with your thoughts from time to time, you know, sin's a, a nagging problem. But it's more of a paper cup than a severed artery. It's more, sin's more of a cold than it is a casket that surrounds us, right? God's made you a better person. There's, there's no doubt about it. But, but this rescue from, from the guilt and, and power of sin, it's not all that tremendous because to be freed from something, don't you actually have to be enslaved by something? I mean, I, I can't be let out of, out of prison if I was never behind bars, and so why would you sing to a God who, yeah, he's helped you out, but sin really isn't 
all that big of a deal. It hasn't affected you. It, it hasn't enslaved you. Why would you sing wholeheartedly about freedom from something you were never in bondage to? But this is to deny the reality. That's to deny the threat that, that was sung about in, in the very text, God's word that we've looked at this morning. Verse 9, look at it with me. It declares this. These are the, the words of the enemy about God's people. The enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. You see, if we think that, that sin isn't really all that big of a deal, then, then we haven't really come to terms with our true state apart from Christ. You see, we haven't recognized what just happened in Exodus 14. The people of God were, were surrounded on this side by an angry army, the mightiest army in the world. And, and by this side, waters that they could not swim through, that they would not make it through. You see, we've, with our sin, by denying our sin, by, by thinking, well, my sin, yeah, it's bad, it's, it's a problem sometimes, but we've denied the reality that sin enslaves. We are slaves to our sin. It's not just a little bit of a nagging problem. It leads us around. And sin, when it comes to fruition, leads to death. Separation from God. Eternity apart from him and a place the scriptures call hell, a place of torment. You see, sin isn't just a nagging problem. It is an enemy that longs to enslave us and crush us and to destroy us. Sin doesn't merely stun us. Sin kills us. Sin makes us objects of God's righteous anger and wrath, of God's righteous judgment. You see, I think when we see the desperate, hopeless place from which we have come, we inevitably celebrate, right? When we understand the depths and the sinfulness of sin, we inevitably celebrate what God has done and who he is. Our, our position previous to us being pardoned by God, what does it do? It prompts us to praise. We can't just sit by, looking at, at the depths, the squalor that we have come from, and then looking at what God is, it prompts us to praise. We inevitably celebrate. When we see the desperate, hopeless place from which God has brought us, we inevitably celebrate. Maybe you're not in that category. Maybe you are. I don't know. But let me suggest another reason, just in case you're not there, another reason that you might want to refrain from singing this morning and, and all subsequent Sundays. Second, you, you should not sing if you had a role in your rescue and your salvation. You should not sing if you secured your salvation. I mean, after all, you're the one who who chose God, and, and since you've chosen him, you've really cleaned up your act. Sure, things may have been, they've been pretty bad before, before I, I, I uh, became a part of the church, but I've been really trying hard to turn things around. I've been really 
just giving it all my effort to be a nicer person, to use kinder words, to be a more loving person. Uh, I've just been watching my life, examining it. And what Jesus did, boy, that was really a help. It made it possible for me to change. But you did it. And if you did the work, why would you be thankful to someone else? I mean, when you get your paycheck on Friday or every other, every other week, do you, do you do a little dance? No, you, you did the work. You, your employer owes you that, right? Now, you may be excited that, that your boss gave you the job in the first place, but, but now that that's done, I mean, you're putting in the work and, boy, you're just getting your just desserts. As long as we have some notion, some notion that, that we've efforted our way to freedom, that we've earned our salvation, that, that we cooperated in the victory that God has secured for us, if, then why would our response to God be anything but dull? Anything, why, why would it be any other way? As long as we're able to, to claim some shred of credit. Hey God, I, I really played a part in securing my salvation. Why would our praise to God be even close to joyous or thunderous? I mean, don't we, after all, deserve part of the praise? But this is contradictory to the, to the very reason that Moses began to sing. Look at verse 1 with me. Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord. Very next word, for. He's giving us a reason. I will sing to the Lord. Why? For he has triumphed gloriously. I will sing for God has triumphed gloriously. Look at the next part of the verse. The horse and rider, he has thrown into the sea. Look at verse 7. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. Look at verse 10. You blew with your wind the sea covered with them. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in mighty waters. What, what do we see described in this passage in the Word of God? What did the people of God do in this rescue? There's a lot of God language. There's a lot of, he did this. He has triumphed gloriously. He has thrown the rider into the sea. What did the people of God do? They got rescued. They got rescued. Nothing but be rescued. That's their role in salvation. You see, this isn't a, a, a Home Depot spirituality that the scriptures put forth. Like, uh, you can do it, he can help. You can do it, God can help. Right? No, that's not what the scriptures say. God alone has worked our release from slavery. God alone has granted our pardon from the death sentence that we so justly deserved. We had and we have nothing to do with this. Christ alone 
in the righteousness of his life, in his perfect obedience to his Father as he walked every day on this earth, Christ alone, in his death, taking the righteous judgment of God that we deserved and taking our sin upon himself, he alone secured our salvation. We are nothing but recipients. That is our part in salvation. Look at what the text says in verse 2. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. The Lord is my strength. Well, that, that's meant to declare that, that our strength, it's insufficient for life's greatest challenges. Your strength, my strength, is insufficient for life's greatest need. But God is adequate, more than adequate for the challenge. Then, thus, he has become our salvation. It's not by your goodness that you're right with God, because your goodness, as good as it might be, it's inadequate. It's not by your efforts, like, oh God, I'm, I'm trying really hard, I'm, I'm really trying, because your efforts are insufficient. It's not by our churchiness, by our prayer, by our scripture reading, but by whatever it is that we are acceptable to God. All this is unacceptable. You can't do enough to please God. But God has worked on our behalf in Christ Jesus. Christ is adequate. Christ is sufficient. Christ is acceptable to God. His offering was acceptable to God. And just by trusting in what he has done, we are saved. By being recipients of what he has done, we are saved. By, by saying, God, what I can do, it's not good enough. What you have done, it's good enough. I trust in what you have done. We are saved. It is by the grace of God in Christ that we are rescued. It is the gift of God, not by works. A gift it's no longer a gift if it's earned. We're saved by grace alone in Christ alone. When we see that, that our salvation and that our deliverance are worked by God alone, apart from anything that we have done, we will sing. When, when uh, the, the Lord's deliverance produces praise in us, the Lord's pardon produces praise in us, that's the reality. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. But in the interest, again, of avoiding the universal statement, because they're always so absurd, let me, let me appeal to you with this third reason. Maybe this one will hit home with you as to why we should not sing. You might not sing if, if you believe that the God who reveals himself in Scripture is really little different than eh, any other God. You see, I'm one of those guys that believes that exclamation points, whether in an email or in a paper or, or even just in conversation, exclamation points should be reserved for really, truly spectacular moments. Like, I'm not going with the, gratu the gratuitous exclamation point. I'm a big believer in that. It, you know, we shouldn't celebrate the typical. That's my... That's like core belief, uh, number two or three, like don't celebrate the typical, right? There's no need to get excited about something that's common. You know, when you bring home a, a bag, of, you, you stop at Wegmans on your way home from work and, and you pick up a, a, a bag of coffee filters, you don't do like the touchdown dance in your kitchen because you got coffee filters, right? 
Everybody's got coffee filters. There's 200 of the stinking things in the pack. It's just coffee filters. Nothing to get excited about, right? If everything's amazing, is anything amazing? It really. If everything's so wonderful, can we say anything's wonderful? And the God of the Christian scriptures, the God of the Bible, well, you know, there's some distinctives about him. He seems like, you know, just at first glance, like a lot of other gods. I mean, he, he rewards some people. He seems angry with others. He's, he's powerful. Uh, he knows a lot of stuff. But aren't all gods, you know, they all have their distinctives, but aren't they all generally the same? And, and so why be so insistent? Why be so excited about celebrating one? First of all, we need to be clear about what God is being talked about in these scriptures and what God we are talking about this morning. You see, this isn't any God we're talking about. This isn't the same God as the, the Allah of Islam or the, or the Vishnu of Hinduism. We're not talking about the concepts of God in general. This passage reveals a very specific God. I want you to look with me. Verse 3. It says, the Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Now, you probably looked at this when, when you looked at the passage in Exodus chapter 3, but notice that the Lord is capitalized, all four letters, Lord, L-O-R-D. That's because it's the Hebrew word or name, Yahweh. It's the name God has revealed to his people. This isn't Allah, this is Yahweh. And, and all throughout the rest of the scriptures, the Old Testament, you'll see this, this capitalized Lord. That's, that's using the specific name of God, not just the title God, but the specific name of God, Yahweh. Verse 2, look at verse 2 with me. It says, the Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God. I will praise him. My Father's God. So now we know that this is Yahweh. And now Moses and the people of Israel are saying, this isn't just like a God we made up right now and we're kind of singing to him and we're excited. No, this is my father's God. This is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the, the covenant-keeping God, the, the God of promise who made promises to us and to his people forever. This is the God that's revealed in the New Testament most clearly in the person of Jesus Christ. This is the God we're talking about. And now that we've identified that, let us be very clear that there can be no comparison made between this God and any other God. Let's be clear. The scriptures are. Look at verse 3 with me. It says, The Lord is a man of war. And then I want you to look at verses 6 and 7 because it echoes kind of this, this, this uh, description. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. The Lord is a warrior. 
The Lord is a warrior. God fights for his people. God understands the weakness of his people. God understands that we, in and of ourselves, are not sufficient to the task, that we can't free ourselves from slavery, that we can't overcome death. And so what does he do? He fights on our behalf. The Lord is a warrior. God doesn't expect us to toughen up and try our best. It says, the Lord is a man of war. He goes before and wipes out his adversaries. You see, and, and all the other gods and all the other religious systems, they have, they have some system of achievement, some system of, of just desserts, like you do this and then, if A, then B. Right? In, in Islam, it's the five pillars. You follow the five pillars, well, hopefully you're good at the end. In Buddhism, it's the, it's the eightfold path. In, in Hinduism, it's, it's coming through, through duty and, and knowledge and devotion. In, in just the general idea, it's does my, does my good outweigh my bad? Or you know, I, I heard this from a person last week. I'm, I'm really trying hard, and so the effort in itself kind of outweighs all the other failings. And so it depends on how much do I really want it. If you're kind enough, if you're good enough, if your good outweighs your bad. In all of these systems, it's up to you. It's up to me to try hard enough to be something but God understands our weakness. He knows our frame, and he fights for us. The Lord is a warrior. He fights on behalf of his people, doing what they cannot. During the Middle Ages, there was a, a judicial system known as trial by combat or a judicial duel. And, and uh, in which a person, they were charged with a crime and... Um, uh, maybe it was treason or something else, and they were, they were sentenced, they could appeal to um, a fight. They could involve themselves in a fight to the death to determine their guilt or innocence. And it was believed that it wasn't based on the person's strength or ability or cleverness that they would uh, win or lose. Like, if they were like a mighty warrior, well then, of course, they're going to beat this other guy. No, what they believed was that the gods were involved with this process, and that um, the gods would, uh, by their supernatural powers, uh, allot victory to one if he was innocent. But if he was guilty, no matter if he was the mightiest warrior in the land, he was going to lose. And there was a custom that, that children and, and, and women and clergy and, and peace people with with uh, some sort of disabilities or infirmities, that they could nominate what was called a champion to fight by proxy, to fight on their behalf, to go to the, the battle for them. Someone who was unable to fight could enlist somebody else to fight on their behalf. And I just have to say, side note, I'm kind of offended that clergy is listed in here, like with children. Like, I can man up and fight for myself. I'm just going to... Side note, side note. But somebody who was unable to fight could enlist somebody to fight on their behalf. And, and this is what we find 
in the scriptures. You see, the scriptures declare, and we just looked at it, that we are unable to fight, that we will lose the battle, but we have a proxy, we have a champion. His name is Jesus Christ, who has fought on our behalf. And do you know what the sentence was? The sentence was guilty, and he died the death that we deserved so that we could live the life that we do not deserve, so that we could live with him forever and not fear death. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is our champion. He fights on our behalf. Is God like all the other gods? Look at verse 11. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? Who is like you, the question is asked. And you're just supposed to shut up because the answer is obvious. The answer, it's a rhetorical question. The answer is no one is like God. No one. Who is like God, doing what is good and right? Who is unapproachable in goodness and righteousness and holiness? No one. Who, has, who can prove his miraculous power day after day, moment after moment? No one like God. Verse 18 tells us something else about God. The Lord will reign forever and ever. Don't, don't skip over this as just like a, a last little verse kind of tucked in there. God reigns forever. God doesn't have a four-year term where, where he hopes to kind of get reelected at the end to, to garner enough goodwill that, that he can get enough votes to be God for another four years. God doesn't rule until and if the, in case there's a coup in, in, and he's overthrown and, and, and cast off the throne. God reigns forever. See, the freedom that he has delivered for his people is a sure freedom because God reigns forever. You see, when we come to realize that there is no one like God, that uniqueness, God's uniqueness elicits song. God's uniqueness brings forth Praise. God's uniqueness elicits song. Let me offer you just one last reason why singing may not be for you. You should not sing if you have no future hope. If your current situation is all there is, if this is as good as it gets, kind of what you see is what you get feel, then you might just want to refrain, abstain from the whole thing. Now, for, for many of us, life is, life is okay, right? Um, you know, TMZ photographers aren't stalking us down trying to get a l- glimpse of what our life actually looks like, but life's, it's okay. We've been blessed with with housing and food and, and, and water and, and, and jobs and a measure of health. Life's okay. There might not be a whole lot of extras, but it's good. We might have some faint hope like, oh, the, the future will be different because God comes and then things change. 
But for most of us, our conceptions of that are really vague. We don't understand what's going to happen. Essentially, what it boils down to is life is here and now, what's in front of me, what I can see. And this is as good as it gets. And to be honest, well, it's okay. There are still difficulties. There are still struggles. There are still frustrations. And it's no reason to really celebrate. If we have hope only now, we're to be pitied. But this ignores future hope. And what I mean by hope is not like, oh, I hope I get that for Christmas. You see, when the scriptures talk about hope, it speaks of certainty. This ignores future certainty. Look at verses 13 and following with me. And I'm going to kind of send you back, much to your dismay, to like eighth grade grammar here. Okay? But I want you to notice what tense the verbs are in here at the beginning. Okay? I apologize. Verse 13. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. Past tense. It's already, it's already happened. Right? Let me read it one more time. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. Look at it again in verse 14. The peoples have heard. They've already heard. They tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. These are the nations that are, are to the east and to the north, where the Israelites are going to head, but they haven't even got there yet. And, oh, by the way, the waters just parted and just closed back up. But notice what Moses and the people of God are singing about. The peoples have heard. They tremble. Pangs of fear have seized them. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. It's already happened. Verse 16, terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as a stone till your people, Lord, pass by, till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. What Moses and the people of God are singing about to this point in their history has not happened. They are singing about something future as if it's already happened. Yes, God is beginning to lead them now out into the desert to the promised land, but God has not led them to the promised land. They're in the desert. They're at the bottom of the Sinai Peninsula. But 13 says, you have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. Certainly this desert can't be God's holy abode. It is devoid of water. It is devoid of food. It is devoid of resources. And yet they're saying, God, you, they're, they're singing, they're triumphing, they're exalting in the fact that God has guided them 
to the land of his promise. News hasn't had time to spread up to those nations that what God did in the Red Sea, and yet they're singing about it as if God has already gripped those people with fears. As if it were a present reality that affected their now. See, this is something scholars call the the prophetic perfect. The event spoken of is, is in the future, but it's spoken of as if it's in the past. Certainty. Certainty. And that's what biblical hope is. We celebrate God's past victory for us in Christ Jesus on the cross in in dying the death we deserve, but not staying dead, going into the tomb on the third day, rising again, triumphing over death, defeating our last enemy. But we celebrate as if it already happened, as if it affects our now, because it does. We celebrate God's final and future victory in which every tear will be wiped away, in which we will fully and finally be delivered from this body of death, from sin. We celebrate final and future victory in which disease and infirmity will be no more. We celebrate final and future victory in in which families live in harmony. We celebrate final and future victory in which God's peace swallows his creation. You see, our our hearts and mind have future built into them. Last week was my daughter's birthday, but the weeks leading up to my daughter's birthday, we talked about her birthday incessantly. We went out to a birthday meal for her a week and a half before her birthday. And, And the serving staff had the gall to come out and bring her a piece of chocolate cake and ice cream to celebrate her birthday, which was a week and a half away. I don't understand that. Anyway, right But she was looking forward to it. That's all she could talk about because she had future built into her heart. And that's on a really minuscule scale. But we all have future built into our heart. God has placed eternity there. And it's this future grace that propels us to live a a life of celebration in the present, in the midst of the struggles that you are facing now, and they are numerous. In the midst of the struggles that you are facing now, you can celebrate because future grace is certain. Future deliverance is ultimate. We can sing about this. I've given you four reasons why maybe you shouldn't sing. But let's be honest, they're they're faulty, they're flimsy, quite simply, they're just false. Quite the opposite, what we have seen are four reasons that we should raise our voices, that our lives, Monday through Saturday, should be surrendered in worship to our God. That it should not be quiet in this place when we sing. That our voices should drown out the band. That voices should should fill this place when we gather in one accord to our God, who has won the victory on our half despite our unworthiness. But I, I want you to be clear in what I'm saying here. This wasn't like a reverse psychology, like here's what you need to do to be saved. Because that our role in salvation and our response to salvation are very different things. 
You hear me? Let me say that again. Our role in salvation and our response to salvation, two different ballgames, two different sports. I want you to just look at with me at Exodus 14, verse 14. This describes the, the people of God, their role in salvation. What do I have to do to be saved? Oh, I have to sing. I have to celebrate. No, no, no. Exodus 14, verse 14. You read this last time. The Lord will fight for you. And you have only to be silent. What's your role in salvation? Be silent. Allow, watch what God is doing. It is finished. He has done it. That's your role in salvation. Flip over to 15.1 again. What's your response to the salvation that's already been accomplished, that you have received, that you experience? I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. He has fought for us, and now we can sing and serve in response to this. You see, the people of God are a people who sing because of who he is, what he has done, and what he will finally do. And so we should sing. We should not be silent. We should sing wholeheartedly. We should lay down our lives. We should not watch as the band plays. We should not remain passive in our lives. We have every reason to sing and to worship. And let me just say one last thing about singing specifically as we get together. You see, singing teaches us. We're, we don't, we're not just taught when somebody opens the word and begins to talk to us about it. Singing teaches us about God, about his uniqueness, about the victory he has won. When we sing those words, it teaches us. We're singing to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, as Colossians tells us. Singing reminds us. It reminds us of the state from which God has taken us. It reminds us that we are not the end, that we give our lives in response to another, that we owe our lives to another. Singing challenges us. Sometimes the words that we sing, we don't feel them at the moment. And so we sing by faith. Singing challenges us. It confronts our fears and our doubts. And singing reinterprets the present, all the struggles that we're facing in light of the future. You see, I pray that we would be a, truly the people of God who sing to God because of who he is, what he has done, and what he will do. Maybe there are, are some of you here this morning, and you've recognized for the first time the sinfulness of sin, the depths of your sin, the slavery that, that has bound you. That, that sin has had a hold on your life. I pray that you see the answer to that. Christ Jesus, who has gone to the cross, who has went and re was raised again, came through the tomb so that you might be freed. I pray that your eyes would be opened that morning. And if that's you, surrender your life. Trust in Christ. Know that what he did, it's enough. What you do will never be enough. What he did is enough. And rejoice in that for the first time this morning. Others of us, we've, we've been, we, we know we're in Christ, but, but our response has just been kind of apathetic and dull. We've forgotten the depths of sin. We, we've come to think that we're basically good people. We've begun to think that we have some role in it. 
I pray that your eyes are open this morning to who God is, what he has done, and what he will do. Sing to the Lord because of those things. Would you pray with me? And I want to just take a moment and allow the Spirit of God to deal with you through the verses that we've looked at in Exodus and allow him to, to uh, uh, just kind of urge your response. So let's just um, pause and let the Spirit of God work through these verses. God, this morning we confess and we declare that you are God and there is no other. There is none like you. And so, God, I pray that you would give us the strength to respond as you deserve. God, I pray that for some of us, you would give us the strength to surrender our lives for the first time this morning to stop trusting in what we can do, to trust in Christ alone. God, give us that strength. And God, I pray that you would open our eyes, all of us, to who you are, what you have done, and what you will do. May it shape our response. May it overwhelm us. May that not seem like something that's, that's, that's everyday, ordinary, trite. God, may your grace amaze us. May it truly be to us today amazing grace. We love you, God. We, we sing to you, God. We worship you. For you have triumphed gloriously. Thank you, God. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our victor. Amen.